If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available right now for you to binge for free on Spotify. A quick note before we begin, this series contains some language and topics that may not be suitable for young children. I'm saying this guy who is involved in the largest drug bust in the history of the United States of America, in return for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and John Bon Jovi coming to two high schools in North Carolina, we're going to let him go? Like, that's ridiculous. When I tell Michael about my conversation with the Scorpions manager, Doc McGee, he's not persuaded by a single thing Doc said. Like, that's just absurd. That is just beyond crazy. I mean, when you put it like that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's literally like, that's just beyond the, like, that is... That is, some, I know, but I think, yeah, I that think is just what so I, what ridiculous. I, it's I think just what like, I struggle uh, with here, though, is that I... Okay, so there are the facts we know, and yes, it is kind of impossible to account for them. They don't make any sense. Has that ever happened before? Just give me another example of something like this happening. No, I don't know of it. And yeah. so This is the only time this has ever and, and happened. And nobody denies that yeah, this, this is, is very ridiculous. exceptional. But yeah. I mean, I interviewed the That's prosecutor, ridiculous. the yeah. prosecutor who is in some ways in a better position to be angry about this than anyone. He said he and was I, angry. I kept, I, and he was, but I kept pushing him on the question of... Is there, um, was there some hidden hand? Was there some political intervention? Was there some point where you felt as though the normal course of business had been interrupted because the CIA might have gotten involved? And he didn't take the bait. He said no. How is something like this possible? But these things happen all the time. No, they do not happen all the time. They do not happen all the time. Maybe not on this scale, but they happen. People, miscarriages of justice. It happens all the Give time. Give me an example. Plugged in. Give me an example. Wealthy guys with lots of connections. Mm-hmm. Get off all the time. That's not, a, that's not a kind of crazy novel conspiracy theory. That's, that's America. That happens all the time. Yes, it is true that if you are a rich white guy and you get caught with some cocaine going into Goldman Sachs, you are not going to jail. There is no scenario by which somebody is involved in the largest drug deal in American history. Everybody goes to jail. It's connected to Noriega. And this guy says, you're off scot-free, bring the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to high school. It just, it doesn't, like, it doesn't happen. No, I mean, so the issue for me is not that I don't acknowledge the craziness of all this. Yes. It's making the leap from a set of facts that don't make sense Mm -hmm. to an explanation, which I realize has a kind of seductiveness, a certain appeal, mm-hmm. right, that the CIA is behind the whole thing. I, I get it, but the, the the story that you're, like, okay with is ridiculous. I mean, it's literally absurd. <laughs> it's a fantasy. It's a joke. <laughs> I'm sorry. It doesn't happen like that. From Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify, this is Wind of Change. I'm Patrick Radden Keefe. Episode 7 Rorschach. I'd come to Florida to interview Doc McGee, but before I left, there was someone else I wanted to see. When I spoke to Rose, the former CIA officer who didn't want us to use her real name, she told me that crazy story about a dinner in the Washington area to honor agents who had assisted the CIA and how one of the people at this dinner was a rock star. 
So the link was that it was some kind of musician, rock star, who played a role in kind of Soviet-era, Cold War-era messaging or music that influenced people during that time. This person was at the dinner? And the person was at the dinner. According to Rose, this musician was there because he'd helped the agency with messaging during the Cold War. But because Rose isn't a music person, she couldn't tell me who this musical agent was. Either she'd forgotten the name or it never meant anything to her in the first place. What I'd been wondering, though, was who was the guy who threw this dinner? Just the idea of a bunch of ex-CIA officers and secret agents sitting around, drinking cognac and swapping war stories, was so intriguing. If the Scorpion story is even somewhat true, this feels like the sort of gathering where late at night, in low tones, someone might tell it. It also feels like one small fact that we should be able to establish definitively. The identity of this host. Rose said as far as she could recall, he was a wealthy guy who collected CIA memorabilia. He even had memorabilia from the OSS, the World War II agency that was the predecessor to the CIA. And his place was full of this stuff. It was like a museum, she said. I figured it couldn't be that hard to work out who this guy was. I mean, how many of them could there be? And when I looked into it, I found one possible candidate right away. His name is Keith Melton. He's a businessman who's on the board of the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. He made a fortune as one of the largest franchise holders of McDonald's in the United States. And he has the biggest collection of spy memorabilia in the world. Hey there. Hey. We're here to see Keith Melton. What's the last name? Melton. Melton lives in a gated community in Boca Raton that is full of palm trees and manicured gardens. Hi, how are you? When we pulled up to the big modern mansion where he lives, he met us outside. He's an older guy. He was wearing a blazer and loafers with no socks. And he ushered us into what he calls the library, which is actually a freestanding two-story shrine to the art of espionage. Basically, the, the ground floor was a library and the top floor was a museum. So the museum, we've completely transferred everything to Washington. I see. Most of his collection has been shifted to the Spy Museum, he explained. But the space he ushers us into is not exactly empty. It's this incredible series of rooms. It looks like it was conceived by a Hollywood set decorator who's building the perfect layer for a rich, eccentric espionage historian. The walls are painted a beautiful deep red and lined with elegant inlaid bookshelves holding thousands of books on the history of spying and display cases with spy cameras and busts of famous spies and exotic weapons and gadgets. This was the father of Russian secret photography, Colonel Lucian Nikolai. These are Nagant pistols, 1895, which were used by the intelligence service. Melton tells a story about how he spent decades tracking down the axe that was used to kill Leon Trotsky. He discovered it in Mexico City, where it had been sitting under a bed for years, and bought it for a sum he won't disclose, but that he implies was a lot. He collects things like Enigma machines, the code-making devices used by the Nazis during the war. First Enigma machine I ever bought was uh, outside of Munich. It had been just come across the wall. Things were being smuggled across. I guess what I wonder is, in 1982, there's a guy who's got an Enigma machine, and then there's you. How did you guys connect? I would run ads all over the world. I'd run them in newspaper, magazines all over the world. Just very simply, I buy spy equipment. Melton was never in the CIA himself, but he's published a bunch of books on spycraft and spy technology with titles like The Official CIA Manual of Trickery and Deception. So he's more than just a fanboy. He's a very highly regarded expert on this stuff. 
The building we're standing in was constructed to his exacting personal specifications, Melton explains. 36 hidden rooms, passages, and hiding ways. In this building? Yes, yes, yes. Are we near one right now? You are. I mean, there's got no. They're very difficult to find. Only way you could really find them is with a thermal system. Okay, which unfortunately <laughs> I, I just left, left, I left mine in the car. <laughs> he pushes on the bookshelf right beside him. God. And suddenly we're peering into a hidden room. Melton was seeming very much like he could be the guy who threw the party. He lives down here in Florida, but who knows? Maybe he has a second home in D.C. So I was already super intrigued. And then, as we started talking about different types of CIA operations over the decades, he brings up music. Of course, Marlena Dietrich uh, sang songs for the OSS, and they knew that uh, the Germans were less likely to block her songs. I don't think I knew that. Is that right? Yeah, she put uh, out an album, uh, Songs I Sang for the OSS. At the height of the Second World War, the great German-born Hollywood actress and singer Marlena Dietrich released a song called Lily Marlene. When the war broke out, Dietrich denounced the Nazis and became a naturalized citizen. The OSS had started producing what they called black radio programs, which they broadcast across Europe to divide and demoralize the Axis powers. Dietrich recorded this song in German in the hopes it would sap the beleaguered German soldiers of any further will to fight. Joseph Goebbels went so far as to personally ban the broadcast of the song. But the morale and operations branch of the OSS kept sending it out across the airwaves. In 1945, Harry Truman awarded Dietrich the Presidential Medal of Freedom for her involvement in the war. Part of the reason Dietrich was so effective in this propaganda effort, Melton said, is that she wasn't American. She was German. So she was, she was very useful. I asked Melton if you'd ever heard of the CIA using rock and roll in a similar manner. Rock and roll was never, I'm not aware of any specific operations. He's never thrown a dinner party honoring a rock musician who helped the CIA, in other words. Or if he has, he's not telling me. And this is his museum-like home. He doesn't own another one in D.C. Melton was fascinating, and it was fun to be in his library-slash-secret vault but he wasn't my guy. Still, the universe of old men who collect CIA stuff just couldn't be that big. So if Melton wasn't the guy, chances are he would know the person who was. So I asked him, are there other collectors? Well, few have been as foolish as I. It's funny. We heard a story from somebody who had been in the agency that there was some dinner in the D.C. area at some house that had a bunch of memorabilia in it that that some agency people went to. But you don't. You can't think of who that would be, though, huh? Well, most likely it was Walter Fortzheimer. Who's that? Walter Fortzheimer was one of the founding members of the CIA, and he had a legendary apartment in Watergate. Had the largest at the time, the largest book collection on spies that existed. It had two apartments in Watergate. He lived in one, and you'd walk up a spiral staircase and open a vault door, and had this amazing collection of books. Oh, wow. And there were a few gadgets, but his love, he was a bibliophile. So I'm thinking, this sounds like it could be our guy. 
he held legendary dinners at Watergate. Did you ever get to go? Oh, many times. Yeah. He, he, was, he was a very close friend, and uh, we hosted his 80th birthday party. Fortzheimer died in 2003. But when I got back from Florida, I sent Rose a link to his obituary in the New York Times, asking if he could have been the host. She got back to me and said she thinks that, yeah, this sounds like the guy who threw the party. Fortzheimer lived alone in the Watergate, surrounded by his books. And he threw these dinners. I tracked down a handful of people who'd been to the dinners. They would start with cocktails. Walter made a very good martini. And there would be cigars. That's the historian Tim Naftali, who knew Fortzheimer for 20 years. He was as interested in your stories as telling you his stories. Yeah. And that's what made these evenings, the ones I participated in, interesting. And I'm laughing because Walter was totally idiosyncratic. Fortzheimer wore a Yale tie and velvet slippers and had an impish sense of humor. In his bathroom, he had a photo of himself with Queen Elizabeth and a framed copy of his own birth certificate, except that it was apparently a forgery, according to Naftali. It had him born in the wrong year. Nobody I spoke to had crossed paths with any rockers, though one remembered the actor and film producer Douglas Fairbanks turning up as a guest. For years, Fortzheimer was like the institutional memory of the CIA, with all his books and his stories. But he also just loved to tell a good yarn, and loved intrigue for intrigue's sake. In that New York Times obituary, one friend said that Fortzheimer's stories were endless, and all of them had elements of truth. Elements of truth. Think about that for a second. You have this secret government agency with a history of doing wild, clandestine, sometimes illegal things. And it's all classified, inaccessible to regular citizens. But there's this one guy who for decades is the repository of all these stories, the keeper of this secret history. This potentially might even be the guy who originally told the story that got me started on this whole quest. And now I hear that maybe occasionally he, what, exaggerated? Embroidered? Made stuff up? When I asked Naftali about that elements of truth line, he said, the thing is, the stories were all impossible to check. They were uncheckable. It's both the challenge and also the attraction of secret organizations. Learning about Walter Fortzheimer made me wonder about the Greybeard, the old-timer who originally told Oliver the story about the scorpions. I'd been thinking about the stories we tell ourselves, in any profession, about the work that we do. The stories that one generation of American spies passes on to the next. And I wondered about the whole oral tradition of espionage. What if the scorpion's story had elements of truth? What if it changed, as stories so often do, in the telling? After the break, what if the person spreading CIA propaganda is me? There's another thing I keep thinking about, which is, in the broadest sense, just about the stories that countries tell, about themselves and about one another. Melton told me that last year, the Spy Museum moved into a bigger location in Washington a splashy new building that cost $160 million to construct. It gets nearly a million visitors a year. The museum has no formal relationship with the CIA, but it tells the kind of stories, mostly, that the CIA wants to tell about itself. And in that respect, it's an excellent form of propaganda for the agency. 
Lately, Keith Melton has been involved in discussions about how the museum should present the CIA's torture program. It's a delicate question. The agency's use of torture on al-Qaeda suspects was illegal and has been reviled not just by human rights groups, but by the American Bar Association and prominent members of Congress from both sides of the aisle. Yet there are those who persist in suggesting that torture works. Can I be honest with you? I am bad news. I'm not your friend. I'm not going to help you. I'm going to break you. The 2012 movie Zero Dark Thirty was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. It's based on the CIA's hunt for Osama bin Laden, and it was made with extensive cooperation from the agency. At a time when Americans were debating the efficacy and morality of torture, the movie advanced a narrative that the torture of al-Qaeda members was indispensable in discovering the location of the terrorist leader. Give me one email and I will stop this. It's not that the movie whitewashed the torture. This is a waterboarding scene. Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden, huh? It's that the waterboarding was presented as a good thing. However squeamish it might make you, it got results. There's just one problem with this narrative, though. It's not true. As the Senate's 7,000-page torture report would make clear, the use of techniques like waterboarding was counterproductive and not decisive in finding Bin Laden. Senator Dianne Feinstein, whose staff produced the report, walked out of Zero Dark Thirty after 15 minutes. Disgusted, she later said, because it was so false. A subsequent investigation by the Defense Department's own inspector general found a surprising level of coziness between the filmmakers and the agency. CIA director Leon Panetta was apparently hoping he'd be played in the movie by Al Pacino. And the filmmakers asserted that their movie was historical truth, based on exclusive access to the people behind the operation. But really, it was just propaganda. And tremendously effective propaganda at that. The film is beautifully made, and just incredibly slick. And the most amazing thing about it, as propaganda, is that the whole thing happened out in the open. This was not some covert program. They didn't use a foundation to camouflage what was going on, like they did with Nina Simone. Instead, they just openly assisted this Hollywood movie. These days, the agency has an official liaison to Hollywood. This is ostensibly for technical reasons. They want to make sure movies and TV shows get the little details right. But it's hard not to see, in this spirit of cooperation, a certain ideological agenda, too. Last year, there was another movie about the torture program called The Report, which was a little more scrupulously grounded in fact and a lot more critical of the CIA. The agency wasn't involved in that one. There's this amazing quote from one of the agency's former Hollywood liaisons, this guy Chase Brandon. We've always been portrayed erroneously as evil and Machiavellian, he says. It took us a long time to support projects that portray us in the light that we want to be seen in. It takes a certain talent to sound that Machiavellian while claiming you've been unfairly miscast as Machiavellian. So Rose said, maybe the CIA is still using pop music for covert propaganda. But really, who needs pop music when you've got Hollywood, which has probably the broadest cultural reach on the planet? There used to be a hit spy show on TV after 9-11 called Alias. It was produced by J.J. Abrams and starred Jennifer Garner. The CIA helped out with that one. I'm Jennifer Garner. I play a CIA officer on the ABC TV series Alias. And here she is in a recruitment video for the agency. In the real world, 
The CIA serves as our country's first line of defense in the ongoing war against international terrorism. Right now, the CIA has important, exciting jobs for U.S. citizens, especially those with... Of course, when I started thinking about this stuff, I thought of Argo, too. I'd been so focused on Argo as an example of the agency secretly collaborating with entertainers. But what about Argo itself? Argo, the 2013 movie that won three Oscars and made $230 million. It's amazing to suddenly realize that I've been basing one piece of my reasoning in this investigation on what was, in effect, itself a piece of CIA propaganda. Think back to what John Amendez told me about why the Argo story was declassified in the first place. You know, the story of Argo was, uh, was George Tennant's idea to put out one good story, just one. Listen to a song, go to a movie, turn on the TV. You don't think you're on the receiving end of messaging, carefully devised and calibrated messaging. And even if we do know in some conscious way, it's easier, maybe, to put it out of mind. I mean, Argo was a good movie. Kind of takes the fun out of it to think the person who set the whole thing in motion might have been CIA director George Tennant. When I'd been working on this podcast for months, I played the first few episodes for a friend of mine. And he said, this is such a great story that the CIA might have written Wind of Change. But this rumor you've been chasing, did you ever think it might have been put out there in the first place by the CIA? I mean, this podcast makes them look pretty brilliant, doesn't it? So who's making propaganda now? But then there's another way of looking at this, which is what Rose said, about how this might not be the best moment right now, in 2020, to reveal that the CIA had been actively manipulating pop culture to help bring down the USSR. In Moscow one night, we went out on a boat ride along the Moskva River. I'd wanted to do it because that's what Klaus Meine did before he was supposedly inspired to write Wind of Change. We'd been working with a fixer in Russia, a young journalist named Ksenia. Ksenia was wonderful, super smart and resourceful, and she knew we were interested in the Scorpions and the song and the Moscow Festival and the underground rock scene in Russia. But I hadn't told her just yet what this project was really about. They served dinner on the boat. We got herring and vodka because, of course, and there was a band playing and we watched the city all lit up slide by. And Ksenia started talking with no prompting from me about conspiracy theories in Putin's Russia. Russian Minister of Culture, Vladimir Medinsky, he told that Netflix uh, is created by CIA, especially to influence youngsters' minds. She says that the Russian culture minister has been saying that Netflix was created by the CIA to brainwash young Russians into adopting an American worldview. But Ksenia is quick to say that she herself doesn't buy this ridiculous idea. It's like uh, some sort of nonsense. This is nonsense, obviously, Ksenia points out. Ksenia is no fan of Putin, or of Donald Trump for that matter. As a journalist, she's very skeptical of the rise of fake news and conspiracy theories in both countries. So I hadn't really counted on the conversation taking this turn, but it made me a bit anxious, a bit self-conscious about telling her why we'd really come to Russia. As we passed the Kremlin, we stepped out into the open air on the bow of the boat. It was freezing, but the city looked brilliant. I should say it was fairly noisy when we got outside between the wind and the engine of the boat. Okay, so let me tell you, I know you know a little bit about what this is all about. So 
the reason that we got into this whole thing is that you know the scorpions. Do you know this band, the Scorpions? You may be yes. too young. You know yes, I you do, do know them. Really? Does it, so that's why do you laugh? I mean, it's uh, I don't know. There is uh, in a top five music bands in the world. Scorpions would be in this top five list, definitely. You think so? Here? Of course. She's a fan. So, the Scorpions have this song called "Wind of Change." Do you know this song? Yes, of course. I do. You do? Okay. <laughs> How does it go? No, yes, no, please. I was expelled from two courses. Uh, so you were expelled? Yes, because of my terrible singing. Oh, no. Just, uh, just believe me, I do know. Okay, okay. Yes. So what is, what is it symbolic of in your mind? Well, in my view, the 70 years of uh, Soviet rule, they really made people tired. Xenia talked for a while about the effect on the Russian people of living for so long under Soviet rule, the psychic exhaustion of it, of feeling like the rest of the world is your enemy, and feeling so isolated and deprived of basic things by your own government. And then, suddenly, this song came along that was about the opposite of all of that. Yes, and this song is about this feeling, this vibe, as we say nowadays, uh, of, you know, been more open and more, I don't know, free. As we were talking, we rounded a bend in the river and Lenin Stadium came into view. So the band comes to that stadium right there in the summer of 1989. And the story goes that after that concert, on the way home, they were so inspired that Klaus Mein, the lead singer, writes the song, Wind of Change. So. The way we started this whole podcast is that a number of years ago, a guy that I knew in Washington, D.C. told me this story, which is that Wind of Change was written by the CIA. And as soon as those three letters are out of my mouth, I can just see her face fall. Now you're looking at me, you're looking at me very dubious. Tell me me why you're looking at me that way. Because, uh, well, it sounds... uh, absurdist it sounds stupid she actually sounds kind of angry i mean i hope you're not going to say to me that this is true that uh, wind of change is written by cia well we don't know if it's true or not i do the one thing i know for certain is that inside the cia this is a story that they tell you know russian and americans are very similar in uh, many many ways Uh, like um, both our countries are cat obsessed you know we're both obsessed with conspiracy theories she says Russian TV is full of them, but it's propaganda. It's for not very smart people. <laughs> it's not for very educated people. Sure. Yes. And um, uh, in Russia, well, as, as a Russian, I, uh, for many years uh, before Trump uh, has been elected, I believe that Americans, you know, this is the nation of reason and common sense and education and everything. But when I hear such stories, I'll just I automatically label, label it just yeah, yes, just totally. conspiracy theory. And I, I don't want to be judgy. No, I it's just, it's just, I it's just, I mean, we can assume that at least the CIA officer was a real poet and um, a great <laughs> songwriter, at least. But, but it sounds crazy, yes. right? Like, I don't, I'm not sure that I believe that. Yes, well. Does it make you sad to that this is what we're interested in? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So you think this is definitely nonsense? 
I mean, if you don't know, how should I know? Maybe, maybe. I mean, um, I, I mean, I will say we we started very skeptical. We were like you. This is a ridiculous story. Yeah. So I mean, the thing that's strange is there's. So I tell her the story about Dr. Zhivago. She knows the book. She read it in school, but she'd never known about its connection to the CIA. I'm just, right now, I'm starting to ask myself, so the KGB was right? <laughs> and, like, this stupid minister of culture, is he right? <laughs> no, this is what's happening to me, too, where I'm thinking, am I crazy? Like, what if the conspiracy theorists are right? And I've been wrong to be skeptical this whole time. Because it's always, you know, in my mind, it's always, like, the struggle, the battle between freedom and culture against uh, authoritarian and, or even totalitarian regimes, and that's how world actually works. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm with you. I think the thing that's so strange about this is if you, if you allow your brain to go to that place, then suddenly you're like, well, what else should I be believing, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. As we're talking, I realize that Henry and I keep laughing, like this is just some goof. When we talk about the story, about the scorpions. It's so outlandish that we laugh, instinctively. Because the stakes of the story, to us, a lot of the time, they feel pretty low. But for Xenia, whether or not the story is true, just the fact that the story is told, that's serious, clearly. And the stakes are actually quite high. In Russia, disinformation is a means of social control. It creates uncertainty and cynicism. And cynicism breeds apathy. Wind of Change was supposed to be a hymn to our potential as humans to overcome all of that. And here I am saying, maybe it wasn't. Maybe the song is a product of dishonesty, too. Yeah, it's just, okay. <laughs> and I'm so sad. I don't mean to, listen, I will tell you this for sure. We do not know for certain that this is true. But I, Thanks, God. I, but I do know it might be. Well, I mean, this is like, the, you know, the point when you hear something and you're starting to be more cynical than you were a minute ago. So, <laughs> but yeah, but okay, I mean, that's fine. Say so just wrote uh, one of the greatest songs of the 20th century. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll deal with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a Rorschach quality to so much of this investigation. Each new piece of the puzzle can be interpreted in different ways. Sometimes a song is a revolution. Sometimes it's a CIA conspiracy. And sometimes it's just a song. One minute, I think I'm making a podcast about CIA propaganda. Then I think, maybe I'm making a podcast that is itself CIA propaganda. Then Ksenia says, no, no, you've lost the plot. What you're actually making here is Russian propaganda. Back in Soviet times, the propagandists at the Kremlin had this expression. They used it to describe people who unwittingly picked up on false claims that the state put into circulation and then repeated them until they became accepted as fact. Useful idiots, they called them. Careful, Xenia was saying. Don't be a useful idiot. I haven't talked about this much, but it's been strange, really strange to pursue this question about the Scorpions and Cold War influence operations at this particular moment in history. 
Your social media feed may have been part of Russia's interference in the election. The FBI's counterintelligence division investigating... Xenia is right that Russian officials have tended over the years to explain an astonishing array of historical events with elaborate CIA conspiracies. In the 1980s, the KGB ran a disinformation campaign in which they tried to plant the idea that the AIDS virus had been invented by the CIA. After the Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 crashed in 2014, killing 298 people, Russian officials claimed the CIA shot it down. In fact, it had been taken down by a surface-to-air missile fired by pro-Russian separatists in Ukraine. No, no, this is different. I've got accurate information that the Russians are stringing me along. That's a phone recording released in Russian media featuring two supposed CIA operatives plotting the attack. Where do you hear this? You don't have to believe me, but my information is solid. The Russians are hunting me. Earlier this year, not long after the coronavirus broke out, a troll army of thousands of Russian bots suddenly initiated a coordinated campaign to suggest that the CIA had created the virus as a way to wage war on China. And how much of that is just mirror imaging, where they assume everybody must operate like they do. This is John Seifer. He retired from the CIA in 2014 after 28 years as a clandestine officer. Russian officials have always loved conspiracy theories, Seifer says. They love conspiracy stuff. The more complicated and complex, the more they're likely to grasp onto it. We met in a hotel room in Washington. I wanted to talk to Seifer because he was working Russia operations at the agency during the period when wind of change hit, but also because he's continued to follow the issue of propaganda and influence operations closely. And I thought he could tell me something about how these patterns and practices from the past might still be playing out today. You know, we used to say, even on their, you know, the espionage games, you know, they're playing chess and we're playing checkers. One thing I'd wondered about with Wind of Change was whether the agency would bother with such an operation so late in the Cold War. By the time Doc McGee brought his rockers to Moscow, Gorbachev was already in office. You already had change in Russia. It was starting to change on its own. So I wondered what it felt like for Cypher, coming in as a young officer during this period. Did it feel like the war was already over? I think even then, the view was that the Soviet Union was here to stay. It was, you know, the other superpower... And it still had, you know, massive military forces and controlled a swath of the, of the world and had countries sort of under its sway that it was going to be around. And it was more interesting in the sense that as Gorbachev came in, it was trying to make changes to re- you know, reform the Soviet Union. Turns out, obviously, it was unreformable. I think there was even more of an appetite for collection to understand what's happening there. Is there. Are there opportunities based on the fact that he's making changes in the Soviet Union? For a guy who spent his career as a spy, and whose name is Cypher, John seems disarmingly open and relaxed, which I'm realizing for the umpteenth time is what makes these people good at their jobs. When I asked him about wind of change, he said, I haven't heard anything like that story. But at that time, it's possible. But I think I would have heard, like, I I think that would be the thing lore-wise you would hear, like, oh, because it sounds cool and you'd sort of want to take credit for it. Like Rose and John Mendez, Cypher seemed totally unfazed by the suggestion that the CIA could produce a chart-topping pop song. We can go to people who can write songs well, so and have them do some. I mean, so that's like so that aspect. CIA of is, is actually a pretty small organization. Like creating a song is not somebody sitting in a carol in the back of the library writing up a song at CIA. It's going to somebody and having them help us out. Even so, Cypher was a little skeptical. The agency's culture warrior ambitions had faded by the end of the Cold War, he said. 
But if it's not true, I wondered, why would a more senior guy at the agency have told Oliver the story? How do we account for that? And it's another thing I want to ask you actually about is, is, is the kind of oral, oral tradition within the CIA. <laughs> oh, it's strong. So. This is what I've been starting to wonder. Maybe this whole thing starts as a story about the agency doing something to help promote or distribute the song Wind of Change. Maybe it's very similar to the Zhivago operation. And what they did basically was make a bunch of copies of a tape. But then it works. Change comes. Bigger change than Klaus Meine or the CIA could ever have dreamed of. And at that point, the story gets told and told again until it evolves and they start taking credit, not just for distributing the song in Russia, but for writing it. Yes, there's a very important lore as you go through training and you work your way through your career. We learn by other people and a lore and a sets of discussions. If you're going to go serve in a place like Moscow, you need to talk to people who've been there before. What is the history there? What are the things we've done? But at the same time, there's also a very strong culture of compartmentation. So if you don't need to know something, you're not going to hear it, Cypher said. Which might explain why Oliver heard this story, but none of the other spies have heard it or will tell us if they have. And so I have friends spent, you know, 20 years with, really incredibly close, that have information on certain things I just don't know about. And they're not going to, even now we're retired, are going to openly talk about something that's sensitive that's not in my area. One thing is for certain, Cypher told me. If there was an influence operation back at the end of the Cold War, what we are witnessing now in our country looks a lot like Russia's revenge. One cold night in December 1989, just a few weeks after the Berlin Wall fell, a crowd of East German protesters gathered in the city of Dresden. They had suddenly been liberated from the yoke of Soviet oppression, and they did something that would have been suicidal until a few weeks earlier. They stormed the local headquarters of the KGB. The Russian guard who had been manning the gate ran back into the building, realizing that he and his colleagues were outnumbered, that Soviet authority meant nothing anymore, that the tide of history had turned against them. Then, this one lone KGB officer walked out to the gate. He was diminutive, and he looked very agitated, like he was deeply scared but trying not to show it. He told the protesters that if they came any further, he had been authorized to shoot them. But really, this was a bluff. He was outnumbered, and he knew it. So he rushed back into the office and called the local tank unit of Russia's Red Army for backup. But the officer he spoke with refused. We cannot do anything without orders from Moscow, the man said. And Moscow is silent. It would prove to be a decisive moment in the life of that young KGB officer, whose name was Vladimir Putin. Think about dedicating your life to a country, dedicating your life to an institution, the KGB, that sees itself as the defender of the revolution, defender of the state, that when they needed help of the state, the state wasn't there anymore. And so it had to have an incredible psychological impact on someone like him. How much of what's happening today do you think we can understand through, through the prism of that man's I, I think we can understand a lot about present-day Russia by looking at Vladimir Putin and looking at what he went through. Fast forward to 2016, when the, the Russians were interfering and attacking our elections, is I think a lot of people were surprised. I think a lot of people thought that Russia had fundamentally changed. But those institutions 
And their way of looking at the United States and the West hadn't changed at all. You have a KGB president who grew up seeing us as the enemy and using their intelligence services as a, a tool um, against the West had never changed. And so uh, those of us who didn't work on Russia knew damn well that things hadn't changed for the way the Russians view the United States and the way the Russians were going to try to use active measures and covert means to weaken us. By coincidence, Cypher and I were talking on what would turn out to be a significant day last fall. We're talking on a morning when we may have articles of impeachment. Can you just tell us what it feels like for you now? <laughs> I mean, do, do you, does it feel like Groundhog Day? Does it feel like it never ended? Yeah, it's really hard because I, I really worry about things that are happening here now. And, and is there any part of you that feels as though somewhere in Russia, Vladimir Putin is getting the last <laughs> laugh? I don't think he'll get the last laugh, but I do think he's been very, very successful about creating the same cynicism in the West that he th thrives on there in Russia. And so I do think he's been successful of pushing these disinformation themes and these crazy narratives and Russian sort of talking points into our culture. As Cypher was talking, I kept thinking about this thing that Ksenia had told me when we were on the boat ride along the Moskva. For a lot of Russians who came of age in this post-Soviet era, she said, there was a hope, even an expectation, that over the years Russia would move away from authoritarian rule, corruption, and propaganda, and become more democratic, more open and accountable, more like the United States. All this time, Russians thought that eventually we would become more like you, she said. But instead, you became more like us. There was one last person I needed to talk to about all this, and it looked like there might be an opportunity after he finished his Brazilian tour, but before he left for Australia. When I inquired about the whereabouts of Klaus Meine, I was informed that he was at home in the sleepy city of Hanover, where it all began. It seemed like an appropriate place to confront him. Wind of Change is an original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. The show is written and hosted by me, Patrick Radden Keefe. The senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Associate producers Natalie Brennan and Ben Phelan. Joel Lovell is our editor. Consulting producer Michael Stender Auerbach. Sound design and mixing by Henry Malofsky. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Our music supervisor is Jonathan Feingold, and this episode featured Drift by Ratatat, courtesy of XL Recordings Limited and Monotone Inc and St. European King Days by Opium Flirt, courtesy of Urban Tromafoy. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. At Crooked Media, executive producers Tommy Vitor, Sarah Wick, and Sarah Geismer. And from Spotify, executive producers Liz Gately and Jay Kleinberg. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Allison Falsetta, Josh Yaffa, Xenia Barakovskaya, Maddie Sprunkheiser, Eric Menel, Courtney Harrell, Chifa Yadur, Jesse McLean, Paul Spella, Bianca Grimshaw, Saisur Skandaraja, Jonah Weiner, and Justina Gadzowska. Source material in this episode included the movie Zero Dark Thirty, CNN, MSNBC, and a CIA recruitment video starring Jennifer Garner. If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available right now for you to binge for free on Spotify. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for the finale of Wind of Change.